everybody and welcome back to the test screening. My name is Chloe. And my name is Billy. So we're going to jump straight in and talk a little bit about the Cannes Film Festival, which has been going on. You might have seen some of the uh, news stories coming out about the releases on your Instagram feeds. Uh, So, Billy, talk us through a little bit about some of the things that have been happening at Cannes. Well, probably the the hottest topic that's straight out of Cannes right now is that we've had the world premiere of Martin Scorsese's new mammoth three-hour and 26-minute crime epic, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, and centering around a true story, really, of a, I mean, a, a terrible chapter in American history, where there was a Native American community, community called the Osage community, and how their, you know, this several of the members of the community suddenly started dying under mysterious circumstances and how a lot of the local you know, law enforcement turned a blind eye but eventually sort of started this mammoth um, operation, this, this investigative operation involving J. Edgar Hoover and uh, the FBI. And it, it comes at a stage in Martin Scorsese's career where he's looked to reflect a lot on the violence and criminal lifestyles that he's trade on screen so far this you know you get this very elegiac look at you know mafia life and toxic masculinity in the irishman just a few years ago and now we appear to have something that's you know even more sobering and looking at how this um you know discrimination in this um community and how a lot of american society at that point in time was complicit in it and I mean, I think like a lot of people, I was very intrigued to see how it would fare at the festival. I mean, you know, given his track record, I wouldn't have expected anything less than than total greatness. But um, it as it is a great you know joy to me and several you know other film fans that we know. It's been a runaway success so far. You know, nine minute standing. Ovation. We'll talk about those in a minute, by the way. Yeah. Let's oh it's my it's my bugbear about these fest we'll get into it. We'll get into it later. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I hate it too. It's you know, I'm I I don't it's not something I view with, you know you know, re- reverence or joy or something that I endorse either. So it's premiered to like five star reviews across the board. A lot of people calling it, you know, one of the most reflective and moving films in Martin Scorsese's entire filmography. That it, you know, a couple that complain about the runtime, but others that, you know, say it's totally justified. The, the, the reception overall has been totally rapturous. And I actually saw an interesting review of you know, Robbie Collin of The Guardian saying that he's wondered for a long time if. When Martin's when it all said is done, if Martin Scorsese will be the will be objectively the greatest filmmaker that ever lived, and how uh, seeing uh, Killers of the Flower Moon has not dispelled that theory, which is a a bold bold statement. And uh, you know, aside from it being another excellent addition to Martin Scorsese's filmography, I'm very intrigued to just see this chapter of American history in Oklahoma in the 1920s and just see what else there's in terms of historical uh, fiction this has to offer there 
well, not historical fiction, but historical drama. Another thing that happened at Cannes, which I thought was quite interesting, is that we're seeing Johnny Depp's return to screen. His return to the screen has been a subject of much controversy, obviously because of the huge trial that everybody was involved with um, between him and and his ex-wife and Amber Heard. I think it's quite strange, again, another, like, 10-minute standing ovation moment for him and also some controversy around the director, kind of him saying that he feels like Hollywood rejected him or cancelled him. And I, I don't know what what are your what are your thoughts? Are you gonna are you gonna be watching the film? Do you think like what what do you think about about him coming back? Well, I'm 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 qu- I've been quite glad actually to see him be embraced so you know wholeheartedly by the community. I mean, whilst I don't think he was a total saint in terms of his uh, relationship with Amber Heard, he certainly you know has made mistakes. I. I do see him in the you know the details that came out about their relationship in the trial as a victim of domestic abuse and manipulation by a narcissist, and you know, I think he laid a lot of mistakes he'd made bare. You know the the text messages being particularly brutal, and some of his drug taking and alcoholism too. I think in you know being com- so completely honest and open about his own mistakes and his own sort of ordeal at the hands of Amber Heard, I. I'm quite delighted, really, to see his return and you know his career hopefully restored to you know former glory. Jean Du Barry is a uh, that's what it was, not Jean Page. What am I on about? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe reggae Jean Page. Reggae Jean Page. No, it's in my in my head <laughs> from Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. <laughs> He's playing King Louis the Fifteenth, which I yes, he is. Um, which I think is an interesting choice. But one of the one of the things that's proved quite controversial, which not isn't necessarily completely, you know, Johnny Depp's fault or link or linked to him, is how uh, the drama's director is a, is a French um, filmmaker known as uh, Maiwen, I think is how you pronounce her name, and she recently admitted to spitting in a journalist's face following reports accusing her her ex husband of. Um, Luc Besson of um of rape, but the the French Court of Appeal had dismissed all the allegations against him in a, in May of last year, and there's been you know, been some incidents with some quite hostile incidents between her and the press. So to see Johnny Depp kind of associated with some figures who are connected to some quite you know heated issues that aren't that dissimilar from a lot of what he faced in the defamation trial is kind of, you know, maybe not casting him in the best light, but I, you know, I do think it's important to make a distinction between, you know, the fact that he's, his role in the film and his role in the artistic work and, you know, the personal lives of some of the people who are involved in the making of the film and how they're perhaps responding to this publicly in not the most healthy way. Mm. Yeah, I, I... I still haven't made my mind up about the Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing. I, 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 my like, my ending opinion, I think, was just to say they were both as bad as each other. Um, but you know, I, I think everyone deserves a second chance. I think the thing that annoys me is that I've heard stories about his on-set behaviour and him kind of not putting 
the work in in the same way that he used to as a young actor. And I mean, part of me kind of hopes that a film like this, a French film or a, an indie film, maybe that will reignite that spark because I feel like the last few performances we've had from him have just not been it. He's just not been good, in my opinion, for quite a while. He's kind of been coasting. And, you know, from I've heard stories of, like, him getting lines fed through earpieces, being high on set all the time, those kind of things. Like, just having a bit of an attitude. So I'm kind of hoping that with this new chapter, that he has grown as a, as a person, but also as a performer. And maybe this can be the start of kind of a new age for him where we start seeing a little bit more character than his usual shtick (laughs) which Mm. i am tired of but i mean okay let's just quickly go into these 10 minute standing ovations what the heck is that about people have places to go (laughs) why why are we clapping uh that your hands will get tired they get it (laughs) they get it it's good I feel every time it happens, it loses its impact just that little bit more. Because like, if a film gets, it got a seven-minute standing ovation at Cannes, like, didn't they all get a seven-minute standing ovation at Cannes? <laughs> it seems to be all that they talk about. It it does it does feel as though that that's all we ever hear about happening at Cannes. It's just like, oh, this film got seven minutes. This film got nine minutes. This film got fourteen minutes. It's just like. Feels like the response to a film is just sometimes, you know, quantified by, you know, the the amount of minutes that the film was giving standing ovations for. I always find found it baffling as to why exactly this happened, and I've I've read a lot of interesting and listened to a lot of interesting takes on this by critics saying that oftentimes it's. You know the fever of being in the biggest film and most prestigious film festival in the world, and just shooting from one film to another and being kind of in like a a cinematic daze almost, and just you know not being in you know necessarily the soundest state of mind when viewing these films, and also the fact that some of the lines to get into these screenings are ridiculous. Like I I've seen some pictures on Twitter of the line to get into Killers of the Flower Moon, and it's like more intense than the line to get into any concert I've ever seen, you know. And actually, like, so there's almost like a fight, a battle to get into uh, the screening itself. And then, and obviously, that because it's the often the first time you see these films um, internationally, and, you know, they're up for the Palme d'Or, which is the biggest film award outside of an Oscar, all this, there's this melting pot of, you know, things that will heighten the excitement, heighten the, the thrill, and kind of the, the sense of being in the room leads, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in this really important film and room in the terms of the Hollywood calendar, leads people to react like that. And I, I, I read something from a critic once that said it was, it's almost like they're clapping or when the review comes out, that they're reviewing being in the room and being in that right, space, I that see. electric kind of atmosphere rather than the actual film itself it's like there i can promise their you if i'm ever in a screening at can i am sneaking out the back while they're having their 10 minute clap so that i can avoid the <laughs> cues and get myself some food before anyone else 
that is that is how my mind yeah, works. Like, I'm just like, no, I'm leaving. <laughs> I'll cop a bit. Yeah. It's a good film. I'll cop a bit. I, yeah. But then I'm off. No, that's <laughs> yeah. It's just like you know, I'm not, I'm not dis, I'm not engaging with all that. You know, it, the, I think the example like one of the critics I read about used was the 1995 um really dark, really kind of <laughs> guttural and depraved sort of coming of age drama 1995 film called Kids by Larry Clark which is a which I think screened at Cannes I think in competition for the Palm Door perhaps not but um there was sort of a it was such a a dangerous and sort of transgressive like look at and volatile look at youth and it was the same sort of thing people got into this screening and it was sort of the, the hot topic of the festival and because of how you know how how it dared people to sort of be shocked and you know be outraged, and how when people got in the room and sort of their reviews were sort of tainted and coloured by sort of the the cultural and attitude towards the film rather than the actual objective quality of it. Um, and you know he got one of those big standing ovations as well, I think. Um, but I think at the same time, you know. Lily Gladstone, who to go back to Killers of the Flower Moon, she is a Native American actor who is, I think, connected or part of the Osage community that you know the, the historical killings and crimes happened in. And her being in the film is a big sort of win for Native American, you know, representation on screen, you know, indigenous actors representation on screen and the fact that she, you know, got a tremendous standing ovation for Killers of the Flower Moon, I think there's something to be, you know, celebrated in that. If it means, you know, she got her moment, you know what, I'll I'll let that slide. I'll let that slide. And also like Harrison Ford getting on honorary palm door. It's kind of cool, <laughs> you know, retrospective award for all his Ooh, I've heard hard I've work heard the Indiana Jones um, isn't it? <laughs> I've heard some. Yeah, me neither. It's, I think it's debuted to a fifty-two percent on Metacritic or Rotten yeah. Tomatoes, mm-hmm. and um, it just seems like you see all these very big, prominent art house films competing at Cannes, and then you just see Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, it, apparently, it should have it, apparently died it's quite. The third one should have been the end with Sean Connery. That was a good film. Yes. No. I. I the Last Crusade. I think my The Last Crusade was my favourite for a long time. Yeah, years. no, I it's a great film. Watching, but the, yeah, I need to watch again. No, the others, the others can can get in the bin. Right, yeah, like Kingdom of the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. No, one th- thing I do think that's one last thing I do think is worth mentioning is that of the twenty-one films competing for the Palm Door, which by the way is the most films I've ever heard being in competition for the Palm Door, seven of them are directed by females. Mm-hmm. Some of them, are, seven of them are directed by women. A, th- a whole, <laughs> which I think. I mean, obviously, like we'd hope for, you know, a few more in an ideal world. But I think that's a big step, and I think that should be celebrated. And given that in the past year or two, so many of the best pitch, but best pitch nominees at the Oscars, I think can produce three of them last year, because you know so many of the the recent heavy hitters at the festival have gone on to have big Academy Awards success. Here's hoping that we get some more Oscar representation for the ladies. Oh, that would be a really 
positive thing. Just to have to have more than one woman up for best director. That that I don't think that still ha- that still hasn't happened yet. <laughs> like just to have two in the same category <laughs> being nominated against each other. It just doesn't has that happened? I think it All has, right. but I'm thinking it has maybe been only one or two people one. I don't think it's happened for a few years. Yeah. It's Yeah. We need we need it to happen again. I think it's more more maybe more the uh more the saying. But on that note, let's move on to some reviews. And we're kicking it off with <sighs> another Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> You sound so pleased. I, I, I could, I, I, I'm kind of at the point where I genuinely couldn't care less. But maybe you, maybe you can change that. So this is called Fast X. It's not Fast and Furious Ten. It's Fast X. And uh, so, yeah. What do? You, what were your thoughts? Is it? Is it any good? Right. Um, <laughs> so, how have they made ten of these? How? I just. How have they managed to squeeze ten full features out of a band of strangely righteous, family-centric criminals who repeatedly manage to save the world, basically by driving cool? Just how? I'm. I'm just now as I'm saying this, I'm realizing just how many hows and questions I have relating to the basic existence of these films' stories. Like, how did these guys become spy gadget extraordinaire, agency certified? world-renowned heroes ah yes i need to i need to rescue this very important computer chip from the clutches of terrorists but i must fulfill my quota of 43 drifts and 64 barrel rolls in my bright yellow dodge charger before i can do that because because cinema um yeah but then again when you consider the fact that this series of films that defied the lord of the defied the laws of physics so greatly that, and I wish I was making this up, in the ninth entry, they drove a Honda into space by strapping a rocket engine to this roof. You know, when you consider that, you start to think, you know, it all kind of starts to make sense. Like, oh, this is how we got here. <clears throat> so, uh, leaning on from the last entry, um, Fast and Furious has now taken the very, um, huh, very kind of, Poor characteristic that the the Saw franchise, interestingly enough, taken on, where they go to a past event from a previous film and go, ah, oh, yes, but this villain who is was you know has seemingly been dead and out of the picture for years, and that car that crashed, there was actually a family member in there that you conveniently didn't see in the background that has now come out of the woodwork for revenge. To which I you know <laughs> end up emitting the biggest groan on planet earth so this time jason momoa's evil genius is after um the toretto family and you know <laughs> toretto and company all the various collected adopted family and friends and criminals and they instead of like well i guess the saving the world partially comes into it but well, you know, I will give credit where credit is due. Rather than you know pushing the the envelope on ridiculousness even further, because how can you, after the space outing, the intergalactic outing, how can you possibly up the ante? And whilst there is you know great silliness on display here, you know there are 
there's a greater effort here to put emphasis on the family stakes and the actual you know potential danger this puts on the on the family and their sort of livelihoods and their children and you know their familial ties and everything which i appreciate and i think is a you know positive direction to go in rather than just upping the action craziness up in that ante continuously until you know you've hit the ceiling and you've got nowhere else to go and you know i think in general you know it goes over reasonably well in the early stages of the film but it's mostly undermined by the fact that jason momoa's villain is such a bombastic caricature who's impossible to find menacing or take seriously that you know it undermines a lot of the power of the central conflict and he's you know portrayed as the devil whereas actually you know I don't find you very devilish, matey. So, you know, he didn't really do a lot for me there. There's this ridiculous scene where he's talking to two, you know, dead bodies and, you know, just in his in his back garden, basically, as he's, like, doing some hacking on his computer. And it's so, you know, overwrought and, you know, theatrical and ridiculous and trying too hard to shock the audience. I'm just like... It just seems so totally out of place and doesn't do anything. In fact, it just it contributes further to undermining him as a as a villain. And you have, you know, in general, the long-standing things with the Fast and Furious franchise, where you have like the fetishiz- the fetishization of celebrity cameos. This obsession the franchise seems to have with compiling as many action heroes and zeitgeisty stars on screen as possible. In the hopes that it will, if the, it will give the film its cinema cred, spoilers, it doesn't. Um, you have the cinematic parasite himself, Pete Davidson, continuing his streak of infecting everything and everything in Hollywood, showing up in an appearance only marginally less cringeworthy than the Cardi B appearance in the last film. How she made it into a Fast and Furious film, I, I didn't do know not Cardi know. B was it and... a Fast and Furious film? That's the that's I didn't either. Hilarious. I watched. I watched Fast and Furious 9 in prep for this a couple of days ago and she's just they're, you know SWAT, they're a SWAT team in the back of a van and then suddenly she takes her helmet off and she's like ah I'm here and I'm just like what on earth is going on I got how is this woman like not 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 even made it into the film but made it into the film as a SWAT team member what that's, the hell that's is hilarious happening? and I mean I you know what out of all of the cameos Pete Davidson is not the worst person I can think of to show up. No, he's I, not I, the I worst. quite like the guy. <laughs> I don't mind him showing up. Yeah, no, I do, I, I do generally I do generally like his work. Maybe cinematic parasite's a bit too strong. <laughs> if it was for James me. Corden, maybe but, um, that'd be another story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it is just like, wow, you show up in everything and now you're just showing up here for like one scene and then nobody's gonna mention yeah. you ever again. You have Brie Larson doing serviceable work, but, you know, she's proving completely disposable in terms of plot. And then you have the shameless, like, rehashing of the crin- of the cringy family messaging that supposedly gives the franchise its faux emotional core, but is, at this point, it may have gone over better in previous films, but at this point it's so ham-fisted, you know, it makes the exposition scenes in Gerard Butler's plane look like a Tennessee Williams play. It's just like... The running jokes about the members of the group being nerdy or stupid, the obnoxiously culturally appropriated Latin rap that like smothers and is booming in the soundtrack, like the horse that's being beaten 
by this franchise isn't just dead at this point. It's a pile of bones that will be ground up into a fine dust and snorted so the writer can come up with another sequence of a car driving almost 90 degrees down a dam to try and escape a fiery explosion. And again, for a third time, I wish I was making this up. And there was a lot more plasticky CGI stunts in the last entry. And... I will say that there are more there are more actual physical stunts and crunchy sort of impactful hand to hand you know fight choreography in this and the the CGI and explosions are a little bit less egregious in this one and I you know when I completely turn my brain off and just submit myself to it I do find that there is still some fun to be had here but you know plot wise there is just so little new stuff and new and interesting you know, story or character developments to be had here that I'm just really done with this franchise at this point. I mean, considering all I've previously said, you know, maybe a a C is surprisingly high, but, you know, it's not, I guess objectively, it's not the most, it's not the worst thing I've seen in recent times. But, you know, it's, it just baffles me that it's, that it's still going. <laughs> How far from the original film has the franchise come are they spies in the first one i ju- i haven't seen any of them i'll admit they, ju- they just never appeal they've never <laughs> appealed to me um but is I-, I always thought that they were about racing and now they're about spies they were about racing they were about street racing and had actual interesting driving choreography and actual plausible stunts but now, I think at some point around five and six, actually four as well, you know, they they start to be because you know Paul Walker's character is an undercover cop. That's always been a factor in it, and I think as things got more and more overwrought and overblown in terms of you know going up against criminals and stuff, you know, they try to just make this bigger and bigger in terms of action. And how do they make it bigger and bigger in terms of action by turning everyone into spies? Not very discreet spies. So it's. I'm like finding <laughs> some flaws in, in. Yes, they're about the least <laughs> covert spies on the planet, which I find endless amounts of amusement in. So it's gotten very far from what initially made the franchise appealing. There was a balance in sort of five, and I think five was the apex and was really entertaining, but also just, you know, plausible enough in its crime aesthetics that. That it was still, you know, entertaining, but now it's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I think even though I've not seen it, I think I couldn't agree on that. I think ten installments of any franchise is maybe too many installments. But we're going to move on to something a little bit more interesting, and this is the new Ari Aster film, the A twenty four horror juggernaut is Ari Aster, and it's called Bo is Afraid. And I've heard a lot about this film, but I'm really curious to th- uh, to hear what your thoughts are. So take it away. Ooh, I've been dying to talk about this one, and I've been very excited this about this film for a, for a long time, given how much I love Hereditary, and I'm a great admirer of Ari Aster's work in modern horror and what he's done to elevate. Um, horror in recent years wasn't a tremendous fan of Midsummer. I had quite a few issues with it, but even in, in the film's best sequences and in the craft on display, 
it was clear that he was still operating at a level that few, if not, you know, no other modern horror director currently is, except for maybe Jordan Peele. But um, you know, given that Midsummer was sort of more audacious and ultimately not entirely successful with that, it was kind of trepidation in my mind as to whether or not he was going to pull off another home run with Bo is Afraid. And, you know, it's proved very polarising, very polarising with audiences indeed. And I was super excited to see what he had on offer here and how it was going to react to it. So I went in with an open mind and just let it just whisk me away. And but so firstly, Bo is afraid centers around Joaquin Phoenix's the titular Bo. He's a man who is sort of trapped in himself and trapped in a you know a state of perpetual you know destructive anxiety disorder and just frozen in this adolescent state. It's implied at the start and alluded to the fact that he has a very very overbearing and toxic mother who has sort of left him with you know lifelong emotional issues. And at the start, it's said that he will be returning home to his mother, which is a prospect that films him with, you know, even greater anxiety and sort of sends his stress levels through of his disorder through the roof. And his kind of ther- therapist interestingly writes, you know, just he's speaking to him in his session, and all he writes on his, on his notes is just guilt. <laughs> and so then, as he prepares to leave and fly to his mother's um, a sort of stressful, you know, sort of spanner in the works event, which may or may not be real, sort of throws, you know, proceedings into disarray, and from there, Bo embarks on a strangely you know, abstract, metaphorical um, Kafka-esque odyssey to try and get home for uh, and some restore some sort of connection with his mother and as 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 he goes on that we sort of delve into his psyche and his own sort of feelings surrounding his relationship with his mother and you know presented with you know innumerable very strange and surreal scenarios and i won't say you know any more sort of details of the plot because i want the the weirdness of people to discover the weirdness of the film or itself but i have to say i haven't seen a film in recent memory that was as unwaveringly committed to an you know a, a huge abstract vision like this or is as staggeringly unabashedly bizarre as Bo is afraid it's no exaggeration exaggeration to say that this is one of the weirdest films i have ever seen in my entire life and i can think of few films that i've ever watched that ask the audience to make this much of a you know of a tremendous mental leap in order to get on side with what the film is doing narratively thematically and embracing the stylistic wavelength that it's operating on now and to say this film is divisive would be the understatement of the century you know people have said you know it's a masterpiece and one of the best movies of the year other people have said it's one of the most it's one of the worst and most insufferable things they've ever witnessed in a cinema and you know, to me, it's it's taken me alone, you know, several days to decisively pin down how I personally feel about it. And having mentally dissected it for a couple of for a few days now, and cooled down from the initial shock of the weirdness, I can quite confidently say now that I think it's quite good. And I grow to like and admire it more the more time I dedicate to thinking about it. Although the reasoning, you know. 
that lands me at that conclusion isn't, you know, super simple or straightforward. And it's not without its flaws and lingering questions, but I think there are a number of reasons it ends up working as well as it does. And the first is that the main reason I disliked Midsummer was the combination of it being super bloated in terms of length at two hours and 20 minutes with um, long sections that just felt just elongated to the point of just you know, frustration from me. And the relationship toxicity subtext feeling too divorced from the in-the-moment horror narrative with the cult. It just felt like that horror element of the story and the you know interplay between the characters on screen wasn't pulling out that subtext, which made the overall journey feel that much more tiresome and exasperating. Now, with Bo is Afraid, we, ha- we get something that's even longer. It's just under three hours in length. And despite the indulgence in length there, I didn't actually find this anywhere near as patience testing as Midsummer, Because despite how seemingly random some events in it are, (laughs) quite a lot of of events in it are, upon reflecting, save for maybe one or two scenes that I haven't haven't quite made heads or tails of yet, they still leave me slightly baffled. Pretty much every other event, to my eyes, has very clear thematic underpinning and motivation in line with that key theme of you know familial abuse leading to a festering anxiety disorder that has destroyed the protagonist's life and you know several other lives in the process this wasn't always clear to me earlier on i have to be honest as the second of the film's four distinct act because they're very kind of distinct separate chapters it whilst it did you know seem purposeful um it it did, you know, last longer than it needed to, and I was kind of wondering, you know, how much, how much is really going on here? You know, how much of this is just, you know, cinematic, you know, wheel spinning. However, the final quarter for me, the fourth of the film's acts, it really, really thoroughly tied together a lot of the film's thematic point and a lot of the strangeness and seemingly randomness of the events earlier on, actually then were, written, were then cast in a lot of clarity and a lot of light with some shocking revelations and sort of powerful peaks in character development. Yeah. And on further reflection, what that fourth act really brilliantly does is play with the unreliability of Bo as narrator. You know, I think the easiest way to approach this film is to go, okay, not all of this is make is going to make logical, you know, real in the moment sense in reality. You know, a lot of it is presented through the lens of a man who views the world not in the same way a regular person does due to his heightened anxiety and due to his sort of fractured mental state due to the, you know, abuse he has undergone in his life. You know, the film plays with that unreliability with Bo as narrator in that final quarter and leaves great room for some more abstract narrative interpretations that would say that certain events are entirely fictitious psychological and don't even happen i've read some really interesting thoughts online as to you know what certain events in the film represent and i think they're every bit as valid as my own ones and other people's that i've seen that are a bit more literal and sort of emotionally grounded i think the other reason Bo is Afraid works is that is the fluctuating tension levels and its humour. It's incredibly funny, something that I did not expect going in, even with it being billed as a black horror comedy. Uh, 
but there's, there's so many pitch black deadpan line deliveries and you know self-aware observations of how absurd everything is that infuse proceedings with a degree of like very twisted fun that makes things genuinely entertaining at points i think if it hadn't been self-aware as to at least to a certain degree of and it does take itself seriously and it's very horrific in certain scenes but the fact that it does you know pile the comedy on in other sections prevents things from you know, devolving into a purely you know melodramatically philosophical dirge which would have made the film for me you know you know either a complete bore or just like actively insufferable but the fact that it it sees some fun in the madness you know means that Ariaster clearly quite clearly hasn't seen or hasn't lost sight of the the need for engaging the audience on an entertainment level in order to you know get them through a piece as you know as as rigorous and as testing as this the distinct feel of each chapter you know it keeps things shifting and interesting the first has this kind of enthrallingly gripping tension and escalating stress level that surpasses even that of uncut gems the first 45 minutes are some of the most stressful cinema i've seen in a very long time and it's just so thrilling you know it's it, it's one of the most thrilling sort of extent this the big you know extended set pieces are some of the most exciting things i've seen in the cinema this year and really brilliantly capture you know having an anxiety disorder like that and then the simmering tension of and melancholy melancholy magic of the second and third chapters and the big operatic climax you know along with you know the, the constant threading through of the dark humor makes it tonally quite well rounded and the quieter sections also help cut deep to the emotional core of the story. The question I do have about Bo, Bo is Afraid in relation to its quality in the end is this. When thematic ideas at its core are as archetypal and straightforward as they are, because they're not actually especially complex when they're quite broad strokes when you get down underneath the meat of the story and kind of look past the abstract symbolism, the ideas are quite simple. When they are as straightforward as they are, did the film actually need to be three hours long and so abstract to, to convey its message when the characters and relationships aren't exactly brimming with psychological detail? And the answer to that question is probably not. I do wonder if paring down the runtime, diluting some of the weirdness and fleshing out the intricacies of the mother-son dynamic may have led to a more wholly satisfying work in terms of character development and its meditations on familial trauma. You know, I do think there's a version of the film that, you know, is maybe even, you know, hereditary levels or getting towards that level of quality that is a, is less indulgent, bit more ill-disciplined, um, not you know, less ill-disciplined. Um, that being said, I can't deny that I find gleeful like invigoration in just how audacious it all is. The fact that I'm impressed that a, a director was you know, had a vision, was given $35 million and a lot of trust to make this, you know, risked alienating his audience this much, and at least for me, came out mostly successful in his narrative tensions at the other side. And actually, the last and perhaps biggest compliment I can give of Bo is Afraid uh, is that reviewing, you know, reviewing this actually reminded me of how I felt after watching Tenet. You know, another film that asked tremendous effort from its audience to decipher its narrative secrets and logic but Tenet was so obnoxiously obtuse in how it sort of pretentiously tripped up the audience and 
actively tried to confuse them. That by the end, I had no desire to reflect on it and try to make sense of it all. But with Bo is Afraid, I actually find myself wanting to take part in the discourse, and I'm seeing great rewards in engaging with the very active online discussions that are currently, you know, in, that are currently happening uh, on interpretations of the plot. And I think that proves that one, it's it's interesting enough to sort of warrant that kind of response, and has staying power. And has meant that Ariastra struck the right balance in keeping the discussion alive with ambiguity, but also letting the messaging spool forth enough that it doesn't become buried under cryptic nonsense that is just frustratingly difficult to decipher. And I think that alone, along with the film's other achievements, you know, it should be applauded for that reason. Overall, I think it has potential to grow on me even more with time, but in its current state, I think a B plus is what I'm feeling on this. I'm liking it quite a bit. I so it sounds like it's an improvement on Midsummer for you, which is you know the right direction, I guess, that you want a director to be going in terms of like interesting. I don't think I was what, what did formally you grading films and writing a viewing diary like I like I am now at that time. I think my, I mean, I've always said over the years that I should try Midsummer again, just to see if after having, you know, lots of people say they, how much they like it. Mm. But. Mm. I do agree with you though. I, I like, I mean, I like Midsummer, but I do agree with, uh, with everything you said about it there. And this sounds like a really interesting addition yeah. to his filmography to Ariastra's my current filmography, i was just so gonna say my current my current feelings work. around midsummer would probably Moving leave on. it at a c on my Sorry. current rating scale okay so this does rank a little bit higher than that um okay talking of scorsese we're now going to talk a bit about Raging Bull. So why are we talking about yeah, Raging so there's Bull? Been like, is, a, it, is there a, a re-release? restoration and you know, cinematic reissue of what is largely considered to be, you know, one of, one of Scorsese's greatest cinematic achievements and one of the you know, greatest works of American cinema and one of, if not the best, sports drama or boxing film ever made, 1980s Raging Bull, winner of... Uh, the one Robert De Niro, his leading actor, Oscar, and I, I believe it, I believe it earned other Academy Awards. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards, and yes, that was, I, I thought it won for its editing, it did win for its editing. It's also viewed as being one of the best edited films of all time, which is a applaud it richly deserves. I mean, I, I'm not sure if it's, you know, an exact... Anniversary. I mean, it's been 43 years since the release of the film, which seems like an unusual number to uh, sort of pull out as being time to re-release a film of this sort of stature in cinema history. But, you know, I don't think there's ever a bad time to revisit a film as, as classic as Raging Bull. So, you know, biographical drama based around the life of one of the greatest middleweight boxers in history, Jake LaMotta, who, despite his you know prowess in 
and success in the field of boxing was a total animal in and out of the ring. He was a known, you know, domestic abuser and routinely attacked pretty much every member of his family and was, you know, a complete, you know, animal and you know, feral human and loose cannon who, you know, that violence and attitude extended you know, into the ring and how he fought and ended up, you know, despite the fact he achieved much boxing success in his weight division, it led to him essentially losing everyone he loved. And, you know, whilst, you know, Martin Scorsese says he wasn't actually even interested in boxing as a sport, he saw something in this character. And what I think after Robert De Niro was tremendously persistent in how much he sort of pursued and when, you know, I think we've got, he read Jake Lamotta's book and he's like, Marty, we've got to make this film. And Martin Scorsese says he was resistant, but in the end, I think, saw some, you know, some narrative mileage that could go on with this character. And seeing this again was a real pleasure. I hadn't seen it in, I think, almost 10 years. And I think 2013, 2014, I remember watching it with my dad on DVD was the first time I had sort of seen it. And I thought it was incredibly powerful then. But seeing it now with a keener filmmaking eye has lent so much, so many more insights into why it is such an amazing piece of work. And the first big takeaway I had from seeing it again was just how much of a, of a pervasively aggressive and hostile atmosphere it establishes and maintains most of the way through. It's a bruising, physical and assaulting viewing experience. And, you know, the shouting and exacting verbal interjections that come from all angles in group conversations in and out of the ring and how these sounds overlap and overwhelm in the mix. It's like they're inescapable. The tone and delivery of the dialogue is like subtly combative, even in party celebration, celebrations or you know, familial dialogues. You get these leering from a distance POVs as Jake obsessively spies on his wife's behaviour, compulsively believing her to be unfaithful to him. The portrayal of the sport as well is is the most thorough and brutal deglamorization of boxing ever shown on screen. The thunderous slamming sounds of the punches that you feel with every fibre of your body. You're feeling you, you're being hit around the head and chest every time you know they land a thumping punch. The persistent, you know, unflinching close-ups of blood, sweat, and saliva spraying off and pouring down the bodies of the fighters. The camera being claustrophobically close and dancing in and around the punches and swings. The rapid barrages of cuts as a fighter um, unleashes a flurry of devastating punches in quick succession on a fighter, and how you see like these quick, very sort of small mini montages almost of these. A flurry of punches, you know, connecting with their faces and sort of knocking them for six. You know, incredible editing by Th- by Scorsese's longtime editor Thelma Schumacher. Perhaps her greatest work in the editing room. You totally feel the toll that these fights take on the characters in such a viscerally physical way. You know, it's as though you're put through that same ringer with them. And boxing had never been shot like this or portrayed as so bestial and gruff and vicious on screen you know none of the and whilst i love rocky you know none of the you know inspirational theatrics of rocky and the, you know the big heroic music you know this is you know boxing as as brutish thuggery as you know as 
purely violent as one could portray it as on screen. And it's vital for the wider context of the character study too, because we're seeing how a violent and bullying man is essentially having his attitudes and behaviours in his personal life enabled by his participation in a violent sport. And it's it's well documented how much of a powerful examination of toxic masculinity and ingrained hatred and jealousy Raging Bull is is perhaps the greatest ever on-screen distillation of that, you know, with the perhaps Robert De Niro's greatest and most searing on-screen performance ever here. But what really struck me on this second viewing is how important the moments of stillness and intimacy and quiet how important and powerful they are in contrast with the, the volatility of the story. There's a really excellent scene early on where it's sort of at the start of Jake and Vicky's relationship as you know, they're, they're lovingly embracing kissing and as it looks as though it's in the run up to a fight for Jake and it's looking though they may have sex prior to him going out for the, the match, but he's conflicted because of his, need for training and being mentally sharp for his fight and you know he has to pour ice down his box to sort of stop himself from you know becoming excited and then trying to remain sharp for the fight but you know he's kind of also wanting to be very passionate and intimate with his partner at that point and I think that, that the, the intimacy kind of gently stops and starts throughout this scene and despite how despicable he is for most of the film, here I think you actually see a man who is not completely incapable of love, but is in the early onset stages of seeing jealousy and aggression systematically like strip him of any sensitivity and, and, and care he might have for somebody close to him. And it's a credit to Robert De Niro's performance that this nuance shines through. And for me, this added a really sort of tragic layer to proceedings, showing that, you know, here is a man who perhaps was doting and loving at one point in time but due to his own sort of you know ingrained emotional issues and sort of the that hazy you know atmosphere of aggression of the sport he's in and the environment mental environment he lives in that is just you know ripped out of him piece by piece an overall observation i did have watching Raging Bull again was that it isn't actually in the end the most complex of character studies when you like peer in really closely. We don't really see the origins of Jake's rage and what past events may have formulated this, you know, all-consuming anger that sort of perpetually lives within him. I wouldn't say this harms or dulls the impact of the film overall. But if I'm being completely honest, I don't think some added detail here would have gone totally amiss i think it would have just made the character study that much more well-rounded but you know the, the impact of robert de niro's performance um, just totally make up for that even if that's you know a slight want or you know place where i think the drama could have gone further and the filmmaking evocation of rampaging anger and the destructive cycle of self-sabotage in a, in and out of sport you know, it still has the power of a, you know, of a freight train here hurtling down the tracks at 100 miles an hour and is conveyed through you know, filmmaking craft uh, of the highest caliber, you know, one of the greatest American directors of all time at sort of the peak of his creative powers. And you know, it's an archetypal and somewhat broad stroke story, yes, but the detail and vividness in its atmosphere of hatred 
and the despondent emptiness that you know as Jake's life unravels and how the latter sections of the story you know when he's overweight and not fighting anymore kind of the film cleverly becomes sort of structurally structurally loose and meandering it it all contributes to Raging Bull being perhaps the greatest cinematic portrait of anger's devastating effects and power and you know, if I was making a list of the two hundred of the two hundred greatest films of all time, I think Raging Bull would absolutely make it in here. It's a total, you know, not like I said, perfect. I think some more detail in the character in the past and building out the the background of Jake LaMotta as a character could have improved this even further. But I I do think that it still stands today as you know a total masterpiece and the greatest sports drama ever made. This is reminding me a little bit of, do you remember when we first met at uni and the first well, yes, was, it was recommended taxi driver, to me was a Scorsese? Uh, taxi, yes it was. I remember lending you it on DVD. Do you DVD. remember? And, and full circle moment. Yeah, you did. You lent it to me and I, and I watched it and yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't seen, I don't think I'd ever seen oh, a Scorsese full circle, by that all these point, years later. so look how far we've come. Full circle moment. Okay, moving on to our final review for this week. I can't wait to talk about this. This is still a Michael J. Fox movie. It's a documentary film about the actor's life, about his struggle with Parkinson's and his family. And yeah, let's get into it. I I, I loved, loved this. I loved it too. Right off the I, mean, bat, I love this. His story seems so primed for a film like this, considering how stratospheric his success was and and the you know the catastrophic timing and effects of his diagnosis, and also this kind of streaming zeitgeist of biographical retrospective documentaries is, that we seem to be, you know, just embroiled in at the moment. He, he's such a cinematic treasure and a wonderfully inspiring activist that you know you hope this documentary would pay sort of respect to that in equal measure and deliver an empathetic lens on him. And I'm just I'm so ha- happy to report that it's a wonderful, moving and respectful and inspiring documentary that pays wonderful sort of tribute to him as an actor and as a person. But and there's so many things to love about it. I mean, the editing for one is amazing. I hadn't really seen something done like this in a celebrity driven documentary where you get these deconstructions of real life Reconstruction, dramatic reconstructions of real life events, you know, archival behind the scenes footage and family videos. But then you get these plus scenes from the actors' films threaded into these dramatic reconstructions as a way of placing the real life actors, you know, you know, real face and body in these dramatic reconstructions of real life events that they obviously don't have contextual footage for they have to make for the film and you know placing the face of his character in a reconstruction of an old event was so effective and like lines of dialogue and scenes from his filmography like are really ingeniously repurposed and cut in to punctuate the verbal storytelling of real life 
events. You know, that shot of him awkwardly sleeping in Back to the Future, plus shots of him running through doors in that film and and his work on the sitcom Family Ties are really fantastically used to illustrate his exhaustion and insanity um, of that intensive shooting process. It's just one example of how they use his filmography as a way to um, aid the actual storytelling of his life alongside the the reconstruction footage and other lines of dialogue that are that are really cleverly used for like you know you know you've got to give me another shot doc that's like put in to like the story of his interview or like his audition for family ties you know that's just brilliant just so such inspired documentary editing here and the pacing is so well executed and, and conceived as well you know the constant unintended motion that michael's body is obviously in and his you know quite scattershot and sporadic and quick-witted speech patterns you know lend a certain bus lend a certain bustling feel to his interviews but the, the still it, it really brilliantly and tastefully accommodates that and also uses kind of it to the advantage of the story you know, the swift jump cutting you know enhances his jokes and his spots on comedic timing he's so effortlessly funny he's just i laughed so many times at just his like little puns and one-liners on his condition and it allows that condition to shine through brightly and i thought the documentary it had this great motif and thematic focus on motion and stillness in his career and his health and his life you know the examination and juxtaposition of the breakneck pace of how his, how his success totally exploded over seemingly, seemingly overnight. And then his diagnosis and the balance and peace that his family life brings him later in life and, you know, the crushing impact of his diagnosis at the time that it happened as well. It's really evocative. And the rapidity of the earlier montages of his, you know, success and talk shows and films are played against these really stark and beautifully still sequences where he movingly describes his love for, and support for his, from his wife and kids and and also just scenes where he's you know locked off shots of him like recording the narration for the film and going through physical therapy you know the use of movement and motion in the camera work in the edit is it's such a wonderful storytelling technique that sealed, that feels so naturally connected to the subject matter of you know, Michael J. Fox's life and his Parkinson's condition. You know, as mentioned previously, he's he's incredibly funny. And, you know, his gently mocking humour is just... It's so great to see someone talk, you know, not bitterly about something that they would have every right to speak bitterly about. You know, his persistently optimistic and, like, reverential outlook on you know, his good fortune in Hollywood plus his fight against Parkinson's in equal measure is so inspiring. And a real highlight of the film was the tremendous honesty that's exhibited on screen, you know, for Michael J. Fox and the film to let the audience into the struggles of his falls, his physical therapy, the, you know, the assistance he requires to record the film's narration, you know, the, the strains, the, his disease puts on the filmmaking process and the strains at times that the interview puts on him for the film to examine that so openly is, you know, very 
heartening and moving and is balanced both from an ethical and emotional perspective. And it, it helps to add depth, you know, great depth beyond the points of some of the conventional beats of a celebrity-driven doc- documentary that are hit at points here. I mean, if I have a complaint, it's that I think his philanthropic work in the realm of Parkinson's treatment is given short shrift. It shows it shows up very late in the film, like literally in the last five, ten minutes. And I think it's given not enough screen time. I think the positive impact of it is conveyed well. But the film's already running a compact 87 minutes. And I, th- I reckon pushing towards 100 minutes and giving that section of his life more you know, screen time and detail and building that out a bit more um, was important, I think, for his story, given how much money and work he has done in the realm of activism and research and campaigning for better treatment and more funding for Parkinson's treatment, you know, and I think it would have benefited the film. Then, you know, that being said, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this and it's, you know, it doesn't turn him into a martyr. It's not overly sad, but it's, um, it also doesn't shy away from, from you know the tough parts of this subject matter, but it manages to be, you know, funny and uplifting and hopeful, and I just loved it. I loved it. Yeah, I I don't disagree with anything that you've just said there. The the editing, especially in the use of the archive, I thought was just so clever. I hadn't. I, I'm the same. I've not really seen it done that well before that those meshings of of different media and 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 i and i agree i really like the way that it showed the ups and downs it didn't shy away from the fact that he was an asshole sometimes and i appreciated that i think sometimes in these celebrity biopics people do get put on a pedestal and because it's him telling his story i appreciated the fact that he was know talking honestly about how his career took him away from his his young wife and kids about how this affected them and uh and his family is is very much in the picture throughout the documentary which i think is is really wonderful so yeah and i i thoroughly enjoyed it i watched it on a lunch break uh last week and Mm -hmm. it's it was just about short enough for me to to justify it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> by doing a few emails alongside and yeah it, it's it's a great yeah I'd, I'd give it I'd, a solid def- a i think it. it's you know one of i think it's probably one of the better films i've seen so far this year and and you know both fans of michael j fox i think will get a tremendous kick out of this but i think you know just as a story of a, of a man you know who was you know seemingly had you know, his whole life come crashing down around him. You know, as a, as a portrait of someone who doesn't let great adversity and illness, you know, take out or you know dull the positive aspects of his life. I think it's just really in, inspiring as a story on that on that base level alone. And I just I love that scene towards the start where he he leaves his home and he's sort of walking through New York, just the street immediately outside the hotel, and um. He falls and his physical therapist helps him up and someone who passes him and obviously recognizes him, you know, goes to help him. And he goes, Oh no, 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 I'm okay, thank you. He goes he goes and sort of remarks, Oh no, I, I hope you're okay, you know. I'm 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 sorry, that looked like an RC4. And he said, Oh don't worry, it's okay, you, you knocked me off my feet. <laughs> All those little quips from him about <laughs> sort of the the trials yeah. and tribulations of his condition. 
So, yeah, thank you for that. That's a really good one to end on, the first A of this week. And next week, we're having a little bit of a break, aren't we? But do we know roughly what we might be talking about the week after? I think we, we do. We definitely know we definitely know a couple. I think that just uh, work and family commitments this week are proving, making things a little bit uh, tight on the schedule to get to the cinema. So we're going to regroup and we're going to regroup next week. For uh, for a quite uh, varied lineup, we've got Zisu, which is a a German sort of very gnarly, gritty uh, war action film, which is getting sort of a lot of you know love in the indie scene, which is coming to cinemas this Friday. We've also got the the new live action version of the the Little Mermaid with a black lead, I think. So I'm very interested to see. Uh, that and if that factors into the the storytelling approach, and we also have on Thursday, I am seeing for the very first time uh, Tommy Wiseau's infamous The Room uh, uh, for a twentieth anniversary screening at, uh, at the Watershed. Um, that's uh, on on Thursday actually uh, for two nights. I'm at the five thirty screening. There's also an eight o'clock screening. It's got an a Q and A with the one and only Greg Sestero of, of uh, the uh, the famous Incredible. Mark. Um, so it'll be. Oh God. Gr- I think he's there in person, so it'd be great to have him there. I'm suspecting so many spoons will be flung at the screen. Just, I was going to say, bring your spoons. I'm so excited just to see what all the all the hullabaloo is about in person <laughs> for the first time. I can't believe you've never seen it the whole way through. I, I mean, I know it. <laughs> it's difficult to get. It's difficult to find in in full. Oh, I mean, I'm sure it's on YouTube. It'll be on the internet somewhere. Uh, it's a... Uh... <laughs> it's a ride. <laughs> it is indeed a ride, and I can't wait to hear you rant about it afterwards. Okay, uh, bear so... level rant. And also, you need to after you've seen it, you need to watch the Disaster Artist. I have seen the Disaster Artist. Um, you've seen the Disaster Artist, but you've not seen the Room. Yes, it's kind of it's a bit a uh, bit of a strange sort of <laughs> runabout there, but um, but I think just you know having the the context, I think just un you know unencumbered by the actual experience of having watched the Room was a very interesting sort of approach to the disaster eyes it was almost like i could take the the story of one man achieving his dreams just despite you know everyone telling him he couldn't just purely on its own terms at that point but i think you know this will i would i would love to because i have the disaster disaster artist on blu-ray i will love to see the room and then go back to the disaster artist having seen it and just hopefully that will shine new light on certain things absolutely well i can't wait to hear your thoughts that's it for this week please like and subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify and follow us on instagram and tiktok and we will be back not next week but the week after bye bye